Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. I am in trouble. (laughs) Yet, if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, What will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The word of the Lord. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to thank you all for those of you who have been doing our uh, Days of Restoration project. Many of you signed up for that. You may remember I talked about it on Easter Sunday. And many of you did sign up. The idea is, is that you were given tasks where you go out and you try to bring some restoration to the world. And... In doing this, uh, we've, we started off, and the first task was actually to contact somebody who you hadn't spoken to for a while, uh, whether it be a family member or a friend. Uh, but then you were given the possibility of doing a harder option, which was getting in contact with someone with whom you have a strained relationship. And I was surprised at the number of people who actually chose to do the second one. And as a result of that, I know that uh, somebody in our congregation actually reached out to a cousin with whom they had had a strained relationship. They hadn't spoken for 25 years and actually got back in contact with them. And so I want to tell you that I appreciate the people who actually took the time and and tried to do this. And there's going to be more of those coming up. If you want to be part of it, it's very easy to sign up for, and I hope that you will in the future. Which brings us to our sermon series. Of course, we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. Each week, we are looking at the documents in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? 
You guys can say it too, you know, not just them. <laughs> You're welcome to say it. So we're in the third part of our series. As you can see, we're looking at 90 to 120 AD. And this part of the series is designed to tell you the story of how Christianity established its identity as a completely separate religion from Judaism. And last week, we talked about the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the straw that caused the Jewish leaders to expel the Christians from the synagogues. Do you remember me talking about that? Clear as day, I'm sure you remember it like it was yesterday, right? So we talked about how essentially the Christians, they had started worshiping Jesus. They said he was God. And then the Jews came back and they said, hey, you can't do that because that breaks the second commandment, which is the what? You shouldn't worship idols. You're not supposed to worship idols. And they said, God can't be reduced down to a human being, so you guys are engaging in idol worship. You're not supposed to be doing that. And so they essentially said, look, we're never going to agree that Jesus is God, so you guys might as well just go off and do your own thing, which is exactly what they did. Over the 90s of the first century, what you see is the last Jewish Christians, they end up leaving the synagogues for good, and they go off and they form their own churches. But very quickly thereafter, they find themselves in hot water. You see, at this period of time, there was a big transition going on in terms of the leadership in the Roman Empire. The person who was in charge was a man named Domitian. Emperor Domitian, he ruled from 81 to 96 AD, and he was known as an authoritarian who ruled with an iron grip. And unlike many of his predecessors, he did not work with other people within the Roman government to make big decisions. He made governmental decisions on his own, and he kind of pushed the Roman Senate aside. Now, his predecessors, what they would do is they would get together with the Roman Senate, and they would say, hey, you know what, like, let's work together. At least give the appearance of democracy, right? Like, that's how they would make it work. But when Domitian comes in, he says, no, first of all, I want you all to know, I think you all are no different than any other Roman citizen as far as I'm concerned. I don't care about how much wealth you have. I don't care about what your lineage brings you. As far as I'm concerned, I have nothing to do with you. Now, how do you think that made them feel? Not great, right? And you know why he ended in 96 AD? That's because they killed him in 96 AD. So <laughs> clearly they took it to heart. And it took them a while to get around to it, but they eventually made their feelings known. So what happens is he's ruling, he's overseeing everything, and he realizes he doesn't have the political elite on his side. So what he does is he gets into this propaganda campaign where he uses religious, military, and cultural propaganda to promote himself. And this cult of personality works because even though the political elite hate him, the citizens love him. They think that he is just absolutely great. And one of the ways that he does this is he nominates himself as the perpetual censor of Rome. Now, this is a position you may not have ever heard of, the censor of Rome. Have you ever heard of that before? I hadn't really heard of it until I started researching Domitian. But the censor was a very important position. So the censor was essentially like the highest judge in the land. He was the person who had ultimate authority over issues of public morality. It's interesting, right? Public morality. Now, what's important about this particular person, the censor, is that they had ultimate authority. No one, not an elected official, not a public official, or a, another judge could contradict what the censor said. 
And so Domitian, he takes this and he combines them together as one. Normally they are two separate positions held by two separate people, the censor and the emperor. He puts them together, and for good reason. Because the censor was the one person who had the authority to publicly come out and say whatever the emperor doing, is doing is wrong. To basically say, to, to come out and comment on it and say, hey, you can't do that anymore. So he combines them together. And that's where the word censor comes from. It's to come out and to basically say that whatever you're doing, it's outside the bounds of our public morality. That was the concept of the censor. Now, do you know that our system of governance here in the United States, it is mimicked somewhat on the Roman system, right? That's why we have a Senate. Now, when they were looking at the Roman version, they decided not to have a censor. Do you know who they gave that power to? They gave it to the press and religion. That's why freedom of press and freedom of religion are so important because the press and religion are here to censor our public officials when they step outside the bounds of our public morality. Which I think is a very interesting thing. Now Domitian, Domitian, he takes both of these things on so that nobody can sit there and comment on what he's doing. He can't have anybody come up against him. But it's more than just a power grab. You have to realize he does something really important here. You see, at this point in time, the emperor was thought of as being divine. He was literally thought of as a living God. Now, every emperor up until that point had been thought of as a living God. And if you know anything about the emperors, were they like really upstanding people? <laughs> Not really, right? And so the idea is, yeah, a god is running our empire. But gods were not moral, necessarily. But then when he combines it with the position of censor, now he adds a moral dimension to his divinity. And in essence, he has the ability to comment on public morality. He has the ability now to tell people how to live their lives. This is new, not been done before. And so once a year, this is what Domitian said. Domitian said once a year, every citizen in the Roman Empire had to worship him and call him their Lord. Meaning, you're saying, you have authority over my life, and you can tell me how to live my life. You can tell me what to do. And most Roman citizens, they were good with this. No problem. They even encouraged it. But as you can imagine, there were some who had a little bit of a problem with it, particularly those who had a religious prohibition against worshiping anything other than their God. One such group of people were the Jews. And you know what Domitian said to the Jews? He said, ah, don't worry about it. You can just pay a tax. It's fine. <laughs> so this was actually called the Fiscus Judaicus. And you pay the tax, and you don't have to worship the emperor. It's a pretty good deal, right? Not bad. The Christians, though, they didn't really benefit from this agreement in the same way. So remember, we're in the 90s of the first century, and what's happening? Judaism and Christianity, what are they doing? They're splitting apart. And they're splitting apart over this idea that Jesus is God, right? And so as a result, the Christians, they're worshiping Jesus. They're saying, he's God. And therefore, what are they saying? If he's your Lord, that means what? He rules over your life. He tells you what to do. So in this way, the Christians have a religious prohibition against worshiping the emperor. But they're in this kind of gray zone. Because what happens, think about it for a second, the official comes to the Christians and they say, okay, hey guys, it's that time of year again. 
It's time to worship the emperor. And what are they going to say back? They're going to say, well, uh, so here's the problem. We can't do that because we worship Jesus. And he's going to say, well, are you Jewish? Because if you're Jewish, you can just pay the tax and this all can be over with. And they would have to say, no, we're not Jewish. And so then he would have to say, well, uh, then you're going to have to go worship the emperor. Otherwise, I'm going to have to impose penalties on you. And they would say, I think you're going to have to impose penalties on us. So the question is, what were the penalties? Now, if you look a couple hundred years in the future from where this is right now, there were certain Christians who said that when all this was happening, that they actually suffered greatly under Domitian and that, in fact, Domitian put people to death. Now, today, many modern historians actually disagree with this. They contradict that. And that's because when they looked at Domitian, they realized that Domitian, although he was definitely an authoritarian, he was not a tyrant. He wasn't going to force people and just murder whole groups of people because they wouldn't worship him. He was a very practical man. This is what he said. You don't worship me, that's fine. I'm just going to strip you of your rights as a Roman citizen. Now, what this looked like in practical terms was that people would lose access to the public resources that they once had at their disposal. Let me give you a couple examples of what this looks like. So when Rome took over, what they would do is they would go into most of these cities and they would install aqueducts to deliver water to the cities. This is what these aqueducts look like. This is a major project. You just see how big those things are, right? So this is not a small thing. And these aqueducts, they would deliver water to the cities. Now, you would usually get this water from a public spigot, so you could just get the water when you needed it. Or, in some instances, they would actually deliver it directly to your home. So it would actually go right into your house. Now, if you refused to worship the emperor, they would cut you off from these aqueducts. Which was kind of a big deal. Because if you're living in a city, you, have to, you would have to walk a long way to get to another water source to bring it all the way back to your house. So this could be a major imposition on your life. Another penalty they could impose on you is they could block you from going to the gymnasiums and the baths. And this was important because this was the social nervous system of Roman society. If you wanted to get anything done, if you wanted to network, you had to go to these baths and to the gymnasium. So if you couldn't go in, it was hard for you to work. Another thing they could do is they could cut you off from certain governmental services, like having a magistrate who could fairly settle disputes for you. And this was big because what would happen is you'd walk in, you'd say, hey, I got this problem, and they would say, well, guess what? This guy's a Roman citizen. He worships the emperor. I'm finding in his favor. So clearly, the more resources you have, the worse off you were by doing this. And so we were focusing today on 1 Peter, right? And in 1 Peter, what you see is that he's writing to these people who live in these cities. They're operating in this gray zone, too. They're supposed to worship the emperor, but they're Christian, so they can't just pay the tax and get away with it. Let's take a look at what first, the author of 1 Peter says. And by the way, we don't know who the author is, but this is what he's talking about. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. Now what does this tell you? This tells you that the audience to whom he's writing, they are suffering some negative consequences for being Christian. Yes? I mean, you can see that. Now, we don't know exactly what those consequences are, 
But it's clear that he's comparing what they're dealing with punishment-wise to that of criminals, right? And also what we can see is that he's encouraging them. Like clearly it's bad enough where he's saying, hey guys, don't give up. I know things are bad, but just keep trying, keep working at it, and your suffering will not be in vain. Now I think this is very interesting. Because if these are the circumstances surrounding the composition of this letter... It tells us something very, very important. And it points to something fascinating because within this letter, we find something very unique that doesn't appear up into the New Testament until this point in time. Something really, really out of left field. So when you read this letter, the author tells us that after Jesus dies on the cross, that he becomes a spirit And he goes and he starts preaching to the spirits in prison. This is strange. Let's take a look at the actual text so you can see what I'm talking about. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. This is weird, isn't it? It's a little odd, isn't it? It's strange. Well, maybe it's not strange to you. Maybe you guys are like, oh, yeah, that's no problem, right? No big deal. (laughs) So what's going on here? Well, clearly, this author believes that Jesus became a spirit, right? And descended into the earth and then started talking to these other spirits. Now, it doesn't tell us who these spirits are. It doesn't tell us what Jesus said to these spirits. But it's clear that these spirits are kind of in this in-between state. They're certainly not in heaven, but they're also not fully committed to hell. It's like they're in this state of limbo, right? Or as they would say in the Catholic Church, purgatory. And this, that scripture that you just read, is actually the biblical basis for purgatory. That's where it comes from. Now, in the Presbyterian Church, we don't believe in purgatory. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, let me define what purgatory is. In the Catholic faith, purgatory is a place where your soul resides for a period of time while it's being cleansed. And after it's cleansed, and by the way, each soul goes through different periods. It depends on how much you send. Judy's going to be there for a long time, okay? So... That's good, right? Yeah. I was waiting for this service to bring that one in. (laughs) Depending on what you've done, soul's got to be purified. And then once you're done with that, don't worry, Judy, you'll be let out into heaven. So that's the way it works. (laughs) So, again, we don't believe in purgatory. But what is clear is that you have some Christians in the mid-90s of the first century who believe that there is this in-between state where spirits reside before Jesus returns that's not quite heaven, not quite hell. Now, where did they come up with this idea? Where does this come from? Well, this is where going back to the purpose of the third part of this series really makes a difference. So what did I tell you? What's the purpose? We were talking about how Christianity differentiates itself from Judaism. And one of the big ways that it did this was... Christianity actually had a very developed understanding of afterlife, much more so than the Jews. So I've told you all in the past that the Jews 
They didn't really have a concept of afterlife. If you scour the whole Old Testament, you see two things. There are two ways that they thought about afterlife. The first is Sheol. And Sheol is kind of like, like Hades in Greek mythology. And the fact is, we don't know very much about it, but basically everybody goes there. Whether you're good or bad, doesn't matter what you do, you end up there. Okay? Now, there's only certain people who make it into heaven in the Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, not my son, but, you know, Elijah, and Enoch, right? So you have those people who have made it into heaven. Everybody else goes to Sheol. Or you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you know what they say, or what they say, or he says, whoever wrote it, Solomon, perhaps. He says, when you die, you just cease to exist. You're dead. Like, that's it. So you have these two options in the Old Testament. You got Sheol or nothing. But when you get to Christianity, Christianity, the Christians believe that when you die, you are reunited with God. Now again, I want you to understand that different Christians have different points of view about how and when this would happen. So, let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul. You know him, right? You remember that guy? We talked about him very a lot at the beginning of this series. You remember that? Anybody? Yeah? You there? You with me? Apostle Paul? Okay, good. Okay, Apostle Paul does not believe in a soul. Easy to see. You can look through his entire works, and he doesn't believe in the soul. You know what he believes? This is what happens to you when you die. This is what he thinks. So you die, you fall asleep during that period of time, and then what happens is when Jesus comes back, God brings you back and inserts you into a new body. So for him, this is afterlife. Afterlife is you get a brand new body. It looks a lot like what we're dealing with today. And that in-between time, it's kind of like when you're asleep at night. You know how you fall asleep and then you wake up and all that time has passed? Same thing. You die and then you're back up and you're like, whoa, everybody's here. This is great. That's the idea behind it. That's Paul. Now the author of 1 Peter has a very different point of view. The author of 1 Peter believes in a soul and that the soul can separate from the body. The question is, where does the soul reside after it separates from the body? And we get a sense of that in the letter, that it resides in this in-between state. Not quite heaven, not quite hell. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, Alex, I thought that Christians always believed that when you die, your soul either goes to heaven or hell. And that is not the case. It would actually take several hundred years before Christians would come to agreement on this, before they would believe that, that thing that we all know, we all say, oh yeah, that's how it works. It would take several hundred years for that to happen. And that's why 1 Peter is really interesting, because 1 Peter is a snapshot in time of how these Christians were evolving in their thinking. They're not where we are right now, but they were getting closer to it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? All right. So this brings me to the point of my sermon, and I'm sure you're like, oh, thank God, it's finally there. (laughs) All right, point of my sermon, and that's this. For the better part of 1,500 years, there has been one idea that has truly floated the Christian church. It is what has propelled it forward, and the idea is this. If you believe in Jesus, then when you die, your soul will go to heaven. You ever heard that before? Sure you have. If you haven't, you probably haven't been in the church. So that's the concept, right? All right. And this idea, it has propped up the church for so long because it's very simple and easy to understand. You can know nothing 
about the Bible. You can know nothing about the stories or what Jesus did or what he said, but you can get the idea that if you believe in Jesus, good things are gonna happen to you. Yeah, can you get that? All right. Now here's the thing you may be aware of, is that this idea, as simple as it may be, it's no longer functional in our world today. It's not working. People don't buy it anymore. This idea that Jesus died so that you could go to heaven and so that you believe in Jesus and you get there? People on the outside of the church, that's not bringing them in anymore. And there's a good reason why this is happening. The people on the outside of the church, if you talk to them, if you look at the studies of what they say, they don't care what happens to them when they die. You all think about it all the time. You're part of the church, right? I mean, that's part of why we're here. They don't care. It's not on their radar. Assuming that they even believe in an afterlife, which they may not, they certainly don't believe that God is going to lock them out of heaven because they don't believe in Jesus. And so if this is our posture as Christians, if we're coming at it and we're saying, you need to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven, we are in a losing game. And I want you to realize that. We truly are. That does not work anymore. And in my opinion, we need to use the history of Christianity to our advantage in this situation. Because what did I tell you? Was everybody in agreement in early Christianity about what happens to you when you die? No. It took several hundred years to get there, right? So what does this tell you about Jesus' original movement? If they were spending a few hundred years figuring this out, did Jesus tell us a lot about what happens when we die? No, he didn't. That means that Christianity is much more focused on this life than the next. And that's what 1 Peter's all about, right? Why do you think 1 Peter, the author of 1 Peter, is talking about purgatory? Is he talking about purgatory to tell you about afterlife? No. He's talking about purgatory because the people to whom he's writing, they are living in purgatory right now, right? Because they identify as Christians, they are facing penalties that they have to deal with and it's encroaching on their lives. And so they're in this in-between state, aren't they? They're in the state where they need to know that their suffering is not in vain. And so the entire purpose of this letter is for the author to tell his audience, look, if Jesus is willing to enter into the suffering of the spirits in the afterlife, how much more is Jesus willing to enter into your suffering right here, right now? And in my opinion, that's the message we need to be promoting. That's the message that will keep Christianity relevant going into the future. That's an important message. And the message is simple, right? When you face suffering in this life, you are not suffering alone. God is with you. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. That God is with you in the midst of your suffering. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important? It's important because we live in a world today where people are the most connected they have ever been in human history, thanks to technology and the internet. Is that true? That is true. And yet at the same time, ironically, we are the most isolated and lonely we have ever been. Recently, recently, a few years ago actually, there was a, an article in the New York Times that said that suicides in America were at a 30-year peak. 30-year peak, and it was going to be going up. And what they found 
is that in industrialized nations that had access to this technology, that they were all in the same boat and they were all rising at a similar rate. Do you wanna know why this is happening? It's happening because we as human beings, we were designed to be with other people. That's how we were designed. And when you're on the internet typing to people or doing all that stuff, that is not a sufficient substitute. You have to be with other people. And if you're not, even though you're typing to all these people online, the loneliness starts to set in. And over time, it becomes so powerful and so overwhelming that eventually you feel like, you know what, it's not worth it anymore. And you end up taking your own life. That's why this idea that God is with you in the midst of your suffering is such a powerful idea. It's an idea that even when nobody even notices you're alive, that God is right there at your side. That's a message that everyone needs to hear because I don't care who you are. Everyone, and I mean everyone, needs hope in the midst of suffering. Is that true? That is true. And that is the message that we need to get out there. That is something that we offer that nobody else offers. And I want to tell you, my prayer for you today is that if you are in the midst of suffering, if you are going through suffering in your life right now, that you might know that God is with you and that God is suffering right next to you, feeling the exact pain that you feel. That might sound trite, but I'll tell you right now, it makes a big difference. I've been in that position that I spoke of earlier. I've been in the position of thinking about taking my own life, and I've been real close to it. And the only thing that kept me from jumping over the barrier was that belief, that feeling inside of me that God actually knew what I was going through. That was the only thing that stopped me. If it wasn't for that, I don't think I'd be here today. And so in that time when I was going through that, You have to realize that I was isolated. I was alone. I didn't think anybody understood what was happening. And I didn't reach out to anybody because I didn't think anybody could understand. And that was my fault. Because if I had done that, I think that there would have been some people who said, you know what? It's okay. And I'll be there for you. And if you are going through something like that, I have to tell you, please do not suffer in silence. Please tell somebody. Tell me. Tell Judy. I know she's sinful, but tell her. She's good. Tell, tell TC. Tell somebody in this congregation. I'm very serious about that. You need to reach out and tell somebody. Do not suffer in silence because one of the ways that God brings us hope in the midst of our suffering is through the love and support of others. And if you're sitting there thinking, you all are part of the greatest generation, right? And everybody's like, oh no, I'm going to hold it inside, right? And I'm going to hold on to it and I can handle it. I'm telling you right now, don't do that. Please, don't sit there and say, I'm not important enough, it doesn't matter to me, I don't want to bother you. I'm telling you right now, bother me. Bother us. You need to go out, you need to say something. Because Christianity is about what we can do right here, right now, to change the world for the better. And if that means getting you through a tough time in your life, then all the better. We are here for you if you need us. Please do not suffer in silence. All you got to do is tap us on the shoulder and say, you know what, I'm going through a tough time and I need some help. And you know what? We'll be there for you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www. 
www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.